Good morning. Uh, see, some of you, it is morning. I can see it. <laughs> you didn't get your nap today. Good evening. It is great to be here at Valley View. Glad you've chosen to come back up the hill again and, and be here with us. We're in Exodus chapter 14, if you'll make your way there. I have to apologize to Blake for the most horrible reading I could have given somebody, all those place names that nobody's ever heard of. You can mispronounce them and nobody cares anyway because nobody knows where those things are. But I also know that Buddy back there, he, he annoyed my wife this morning because he said we've got to start collecting school supplies for tools for schools. Did you all get that? Anybody cringe just a little when he said we've got to collect school supplies? Anybody bothered by that at all? That's, that's okay with you? Anybody not want to think about school a little longer? Anybody? Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Anyway, and here's the church just bringing in these things uh, before us like this. But anyway, uh, Exodus chapter 14 is where we are tonight. And it's, as, it's, it's likely we're going to read through this passage together for the most part. Uh, and it's likely that you cannot, if you're an, if you're an older person, you, you cannot get the image of the movie Ten Commandments out of your head. You're going to see Charlton Heston as Moses for the rest of your life and you're going to be shocked when you get to heaven and the Ten Commandments don't have a little NRA, NRA, NRA label on the corner of them, right? Because you think about that and that's the image you've got in your head. No chapter though in the Bible is more prone and capable of igniting your imagination than this chapter. It is one of the heroic. We got these superhero movies now about all these people like Thor and Spider-Man and all this stuff. And it's the, the very last set. You get the worst kind of disaster, the last second of, of being able to save somebody. And they come in at the last moment and pull them back to life. And it just gives you this feeling of goosebumps, right? But this chapter is every bit of that. And it's true. It's not Marvel and it's not DC. It's God. And it's the most amazing thing. This is, this, every VBS has to be on this, you know. Every, everybody has to do a VBS on this. I want us to look at the first four verses for a moment when, when God says, I, I, I want you, Moses, to tell the people this. This is something we sometimes forget. But this deliverance that these people get is so obvious and so personal. My question is, how would you respond to somebody who is a savior to you like God is to these people. What would be your response? In chapter 14, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of this city, between that city and the sea, in front of another city. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. I want you to go in circles. I want you to go back. I want you to kind of go around like this. And the people got to think, this is nuts. Why would anybody travel like this? For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, Pharaoh's watching y'all. Pharaoh's seeing what's going on, and Pharaoh's going to say, they're wandering around. They're lost in the wilderness. These people who beg to get out of here are just kind of going in circles. And I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his people, and the Egyptians will know I'm the Lord. And, God, and Moses told them, I want you to know the stuff that happens in this chapter, God told the people what he was going to do before he did it. Get that detail because he's like a narrator coming out and saying, let me tell you the story. Let me tell you the setting and the scene of it. Only instead of the narrator knowing and the characters not knowing, God says, I want Israel to know this. Moses, tell them. Nothing in this chapter should surprise them, and yet the people are going to act surprised. 
This chapter is a great story, but it's not just something that happened way back there. It still functions for us as believers, even right now. All these many years later, this chapter still has a role in our lives. It's not a, smile, it's not a story to smile at and wonder and then return to our lives with no connection at all, as if it has no bearing at all. There's a lot of uses we're to make of this story. So notice in these first four verses, God sets this stuff up and he says, first of all, we're gonna, I'm, on, I'm wanting you to go on a crazy route. I want you to look like you're just lost completely. It doesn't take me a lot to imagine what that's like because I spend a lot of my time that way. If I travel or whatever, I'm lost a lot. And so he says, I want, I want you guys to know I'm putting you kind of going in circles. And it's my way of kind of inciting Pharaoh. I'm picking a fight with Pharaoh. I want you to know he's going to come back after you. This story's not done yet. It should have been, the ten plagues should have been enough. But you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to get a little more out of him. I'm going to draw this story out a little more. And so I'm going to make you wander around looking lost. Pharaoh's going to come back after you. And I'm going to get my glory out of him. I'm going to use him a little bit more, God says. Now, I know it's true that God doesn't provide a lot of specific details in this overview of the first four verses. But they have no excuse for acting hysterical when this stuff actually happens. God prepares them for the insanity that's about to ensue. And I'm wondering how many times does God tell us in his word as believers in the New Testament that life is sometimes, guys, going to be troublesome. Does God ever say to us, it's going to be a problem-free life and you should expect that when you become a Christian and you bow your knee to the Lord and you uh, immerse in the waters of baptism, you'll never have another tr trouble in your life. You'll never have any kind of skirmishes or hiccups go wrong in your life. Does God ever say that? Does he ever say that? The answer is no. In this life, you will have tribulations. But be of good cheer I've overcome the world. God tells us very clearly in Scripture, and He's honest with us. He doesn't give us a bad sale here. He doesn't promise more than He delivers. God says, hey, even after your Christian life, even after you join me in walking through life, I want you to know you're going to have troubles, and I'm going to be with you through every single one of them. James is so emphatic. He says, count it joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. I want you to know it's going to happen. Every kind of trial you can imagine is going to come on you. And when you see it coming, I want you to joyfully prepare for it. That sounds psychotic. But what we know is what they found out. That when life gets the most hectic, God gets the most obvious. And God develops you and deepens you and matures you more in those moments. And so a New Testament believer knows when the trouble comes, I'm going to brace myself. It's not going to be pleasant, but I'm going to prepare myself for what God's going to do in me. We're supposed to face it that way. The people of Israel make camp beside the sea. All the king's horses and all the king's men start coming to them, right? They could see Pharaoh coming from a distance. So when the king of Egypt was told the people had fled, it's like he had this brain freeze. The people are gone. What? Yeah, you sent them away. I mean, why is this surprising to you? I think Pharaoh thought they would be gone for three days and come back. But that doesn't matter. When Pharaoh 
was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. Verse 5, and they said, what is this we've done? We've let Israel go from serving us. We've lost our free help. The economy is going to sink. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt and his officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. All he did, I think, was pick a fight. It's called exasperating him. He made the people look like lost, easy target out there in the wilderness, and Pharaoh just couldn't help himself, and God knew it. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and all Pharaoh's chariots and his horsemen and his army overtook them and camped by the sea. And when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel, what'd they do? Say it. Cried out. Here they start. Whiny baby, start crying. It's the first thing people do when things get a little uncomfortable. We start whining and crying and griping and complaining and grumbling. God had already told them what was going to happen. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us out here to die? Were there not enough graveyards? What have you done to bring us out here? Isn't this what we told you? Just leave us alone. Let us, you know, serve out our time in Egypt. And so the people start complaining. Moses said to the people, and if you have a memory verse for every book in Scripture, this should be your memory verse for the book of Exodus. Exodus 14, 13, and 14. Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Now that sounds pleasant, but what Moses is really saying is, what you need to do is shut your mouth. You need to quit your grumbling. God's going to take care of you in this. He already told you. He doesn't say it like this, but he would today. He told you in verse 4. God's already told you what he's going to do, and you're still grumbling and complaining. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? That's weird because Moses didn't. But he's counting Moses as the people. Tell the people of Israel to go forward. And he tells Moses what to do. I want you to lift up your staff, and I want you to stretch out your hand. And you know what happens. I'm going to tell the story from here. Moses stands there. He lifts up his hands with the rod of God in his hands. There's a strong east wind that starts blowing, and it blows in a strong direction. It blows into the water, and it heaps up the water as a wall on both sides. It's wide enough for the people to walk through, and not only do they walk through, they walk through on dry ground where the sea was. Now, there's a wall of water, and even in chapter 15, verse 8, he says the water's congealed, becomes like jello. That's a cool thought. Now, I, I have my imagination run wild with me about what this wall looked like. Were there fish staring at them like, what are you doing down here? I would think so. There's all sorts of weird things about this, and the people are just mesmerizing, like, what do we do? And God has to tell them, oh, walk, will you? Will you walk through here? You're supposed to walk through dry ground. In between the Egyptians and the Israelites is this 
cloud that for, for, for God's people it lights up the night because this is between two in the morning and dawn. So we're talking about really deep night now. And while the wall is piled up, the water is piled up as a wall and that east wind is blowing and the waters are congealing and they're walking through and it's two o'clock in the morning. It's bright as day because the light of God, the fire of God is lighting up the Egyptians, uh, uh, is the Israelites, but the Egyptians are in a cloud of darkness. So it's day and night going across the ocean, the sea, like this. How interesting is that? Now, here's the thing. If I were watching this, I would go, I don't see God here. There's a cloud, there's an east wind, there's a wall of water, and there's dry ground they're walking through, but I don't see God here. Because God works an amazing wonder here, but he does it through natural means. He produces this, an amazing experience, but it's not obviously God. Except for the fact you got Moses standing here doing this, and there's got to be some correlation between him doing this and the sea doing this. And so I've seen the far side. Have you seen the far side? Moses, when he gets up in the morning and he wants to part his hair, he just goes like this in the mirror. Have you seen that? And there it is, and there's his parting hair. There's all sorts of neat little things you can do with this, but what an amazing scene is this. And the, the Egyptians decide, hey, they're doing it. We're going to do it too. And so as the Egyptians start going into the seabed, it's no longer dry. Their chariot wheels get clogged in the mud, and they get mired, and they'll fall off, and they get stuck, and they can't go any further. And the Egyptians, it says, have this chaotic confusion that overtakes them, and they're, they're just overwhelmed by how difficult it is as they're getting in the middle. And so at dawn, it says when the daylight comes, the, the Israelites are now safely on the other side. The Egyptians are still in the middle of the sea. Moses does his thing in reverse now, and he kind of closes it up, and the water returns to where it was, and all the Egyptians are drowned in the midst of the sea. And what a melee and confusion that was. And what you see is all sorts of Egyptian things floating on the Red Sea and Egyptian bodies floating up on shore. It's an amazing thing. God waited till daylight so that the, all the Israelites could see this with clarity of day because they needed to see it. That's the story of Scripture. That's the story the church needs to stick with, and I believe this happened. I believe it happened on the stage of history, and there are some people who want to say, well, that's just kind of a mythical story with a spiritual legendary message from it. I don't buy that at all. I can't because that's what it's recorded as Scripture, and we're going to see in a minute that the Israelites for years and years look back on this as one of the primary reasons to give faith in God in the first place. But God had a purpose for what he was doing. He picked this fight. He's the one who trapped the Egyptians. He's the one who incited them to come in the first place because he was going to get his last bit of glory out of them. Look at verse 4. We're going to read it again. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue you, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians will know. They should have known already. They've had ten shots before. Then verse 18. 
And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. He's doing this to emphatically say to the Egyptians, you are no match for the God of heaven. But he's also doing it for the Israelites. If you look at verse 25, the Egyptians themselves say this. It clogged their chariots so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let's get out of here before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Did they really need this last illustration to know that? Apparently. And it sunk in. Yet it sunk in. <laughs> okay, I thought it was funny. Then verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. Finally, they feared the Lord. They believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Finally, it takes this kind of scene to engender the kind of faith that God deserved all along. He was defining who he is. He was showing what he can do. And what we learn is that God is more powerful than any natural forces, any powerful armies. Already learned in the plagues, but learned with underlining and all caps and, in, and italics with the Red Sea parting. If you're going to take Scripture and you're going to try to prove the nature of our God and what he does for his people and you pick the top five things in all of Scripture, this chapter has to be one of them. And even for us New Testament Christians, this story captures our imagination. God, we believe the God that we serve this morning, the God we worship this morning, was the same God who did all this. Same exact God. And you gather here on a Sunday night. It's that God who's here. And we're serving him. And we believe he worked this way. And we believe today that when trouble comes into our lives, there's no greater place than to, to be than within the will of this God, trusting him to bring us out of our dilemmas too. It would have been so impressive an actual time to have seen this. And one of my... It's one of the top five scenes in heaven that I'm going to say to God, do you have an HD video to show me this? I want to see this happen. I want to see the real Moses. I want to see the real thing happen. Maybe even go back in a time machine and look at it. I don't know how we'll do that. But we are looking back at it from New Testament believers, back through the Old Testament, and looking at it in, in, in reverse. And God had always intended this event in Exodus to be kind of the default understanding of what God's power is and how it can save us and to give us this great confidence that even today, whatever our dilemma is, he's still the one to consult and he's still the one to bring us out. He overcomes those chaotic, powerful forces that trap us and make us feel the dread and fear. I, I want you to look at a couple of Psalms with me. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Psalm 77. And if you don't, you'll just have to listen. Uh, Psalm 77 is a lament, a communal lament, crying out to God because they are in trouble. And he knows God hears. The day of trouble has come, and the psalmist and the whole community who are, who are in this trouble are crying out to God. And I want you to read that with me in the first few verses. I cry aloud to God, Psalm 77. 
And he will hear, I aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. This person is in deep distress, and he just can't find any relief. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled, I cannot speak. You ever been there? Or did somebody say, I've got to work at looking at Psalms through my personal experience? Why do you have to work at all? Doesn't that naturally happen to you? I consider the days of old, the years of long ago. What do I do? What do I do when I don't have any clue? I'm powerless, I'm helpless, I don't know what to do, I can't sleep, I'm so worried, I'm so overwhelmed with dread and fear. What do I do when those moments happen? He says, let me remember my song in the night, let me meditate in my heart when my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises an end for all time? Has God changed? Has God gone away? Has God no longer got the power that he used to? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Verse 9, has he in anger shut up his compassion? And then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. In my mind, I'm going to go back to what he's done before. Look at verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. God, you didn't rescue them from the sea. You didn't carry them over the water. You didn't make sure no water ever overtook them. No, Lord, your way, your way was right through it. You're right, you were present with them through the waters, not under them, over them, and around them. You went through the waters with them. That's the God we serve, not a God, not a God who always saves you from stuff. Your God is a God who saves you in stuff and through stuff, and he goes through it with you. Even though the footprints were unseen, there's always another explanation, but you know it was God. That's a communal myth. Now, now look at Psalm 78, since we're already there. This is a psalm called the wisdom psalm of how to raise your kids. Listen to the text of the first few verses. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I'll open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we've heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. I'm going to tell you stories of what God's done in the great back beyond. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, children yet unborn. Arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God. Why is he telling them these stories? Why is he saying, you fathers, tell your kids these stories? Why is he saying this? So that they will set their hope in God. Do you want your children to have a hope in God that gives them faith for life? Do you want that for your kids? Tell them the stories. Have them in Bible class. 
If you don't bring them to Bible class and you don't tell them the Bible stories and they don't set their hope on God, then look in the mirror for the reason why your kids don't have faith. Keep reading. And not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Tell the stories that they hope in God and their faith is rooted in who God is. It's as simple as telling kids the stories. Now, before we're done, look at verse 9. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to this law. They forgot his works and the wonders he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the land of Zon. He divided the sea and let them pass through it. He made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime he led them with a cloud, and all night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness, gave them to drink abundantly from the deep, the waters from the rocks. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Did all that really happen, or is that poetic imagery of what God could do if he really wanted to? It happened. You tell your kids these stories, and you tell them it's true stories. These are historical accounts of what God's done in the past, and it gives them a sense of hope so that when they feel stuck, when they feel thirsty, when they feel between a rock and a hard place or between a sea and an army, they'll know this is not new territory for the God you serve. This is not strange territory, and the best place to be is with God in those moments. Tell them the stories. It's what we do when we're lamenting. We look back on those stories and we remember this is why we trust God. And it's what we do when we're raising the next generation. And then if you'll just look at for a second, Psalm 136. We're not going to read this whole thing. And I'm hoping you can take one look at it and see what the main point of this song is. Can anybody tell me, just take a, take a stab in the dark at what might be the main message of this song of Psalm 136. Anybody want to take a stab at it? His what? His loving kindness endures forever. How do you get that? Is it because it's repeated 3,855 times? Could be. It's the chorus. There's a very, very short verses, and then this chorus keeps me repeating. But I want you to notice how do we know God's steadfast love endures forever? And He gives all these illustrations. But notice verse 11. Brought, uh, verse 10, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them, verse 11. Verse 12, with a strong hand and outstretched arm, to him who divided the Red Sea in two. That's the God we serve. And while you didn't see it and I didn't experience it firsthand, I believe it happened. I believe it happened for my forefathers. I believe it happened for yours. And I believe that same God is still there for when you have this experience. That's what we're supposed to learn. And this image further from this story is the fact of the sea. The sea is this chaotic, tumultuous thing that's uncontrollable and terrifying. The one place none of us ever want to be is in the middle of a storm on the sea, tossed like a twig, and you have no way of controlling anything. It's terrifying, and nobody wants to drown either, right? And so the sea becomes a symbol of the chaotic forces of the world, and God always can tame them. 
In creation, he tames the waters. He separates the waters and says, you can come here, but no further, and land starts here. Or God's in control of this, but it still rises up every once in a while like the Red Sea. And the psalmist says, we serve a God who's not intimidated by the waters. He rides upon the waves, and he stills the storms. And then we've got those experiences like Jesus in Mark chapter 6. When the disciples are straining at the oars in the, in the fourth watch of the night, early in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, straining at the oars to go across the lake that's now just busted out in storm. And what do they see God doing? They see Jesus walking along the sea, about to pass them by. And then he calms the storm. The seas are terrifying, and when life threatens to overwhelm you, it makes you feel like you're being drowned in the sea. And then in the Revelation, what we see is the devil and his angels are tossed into the sea, and then we see a picture of heaven, and he makes a very distinct claim in chapter 21, verse 1. There is a heaven, and there is no longer any sea. There's nothing to make you feel that kind of fear. God eliminates it. You know the rest of the story, though, don't you? After seeing and witnessing this amazing, dramatic story of crossing, on the Red sea, crossing the Red Sea on dry ground, the people aren't impressed for very long. It's not even a chapter after this. They had the song in chapter 15 where they remember this story, and they said, we're going to put it in a song so that we never forget it, and then shortly after that, they're grumbling about water or something else. We've got to remember that rescue because as picturesque and dramatic as it is, it will never be so dramatic that human beings and their fickleness cannot forget. One other chapter I want you to turn to. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I really want you to see this. So if you've got a pen, underline this. And if not, just make it emphatic in your head. Just because you've experienced a great deliverance from God doesn't mean that you won't ever forget it and leave it behind. That's the moral of the story. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. All passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. That's interesting, isn't it? They experienced a baptism much like you did, Paul says to the Corinthians. You guys boast about this. You guys boast that, hey, we've been baptized and we observe the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. I don't know if many of you boast about this, but if that's your boast, that's a great thing. But it's not enough. Your forefathers were baptized in the sea. Their crossing the Red Sea was a baptism for them. What's the comparison? Well, for one thing, they were in the water. Well, not exactly in the water, but they passed through the water. They were immersed in a weird sort of way. And when they got through it, Every evidence of their old life was washed away. When they saw the bodies of the Egyptians washing up on shore, they knew their past would never haunt them again. Baptism cuts you off from the guilt of the past. That old life is now dead and gone. It cannot haunt you anymore. 
And not only that, but it, it promises you a life where God will lead you if you will follow him. You can still turn away, but he's going to give you that cloud, and he's going to give you that pillar of fire, and he's going to guide them through the wilderness. God gives us his Holy Spirit after the baptism that guides us in our lives. They've been baptized just like we were, and yet how many of them, I, wanna, I want you to hold up your hand and give me a number, how many of those people who witnessed that actually got to the promised land? Two. Unless there's wee little kids, maybe. After witnessing that, how could anything keep you from having faith in your God? I don't know. They grumble and complain immediately. But he says they've been baptized into the sea, right? They all ate the same spiritual food. They had a communion. They had the, they had the little wafer, too. They don't call it communion or, or unleavened bread. They call it manna, and then they had water from a rock, which is God-provided liquid, right? And they had, they observed the Lord's Supper too. Notice what he says. They had the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And yet, nevertheless, many of them God was not pleased with, and they, they were thrown in the wilderness, overthrown in the wilderness. These things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. The message of this story, too, is this. We are in the same place Israel was. When we are baptized, we experience the deliverance of God's favor. We have a Savior who, come, who comes in and rescues us from our lost slavery to sin. But we're not yet to the promised land in heaven yet. We are where Israel is. We've experienced our baptism. We're experiencing communion to keep us strong through the wilderness years. But we haven't made it to the promised land yet. And we have the great joy of knowing we're right with God. And he's atoned for our sins. And he is guiding us. But there's a great danger that in this wilderness time that you will forget your salvation. You will turn away from the God who saved you and no longer be mesmerized by his love for you. How many of you are still mesmerized by the fact you have a God who loved you so much he gave up his only son for you? That is the gospel that we remember this morning and that must forever prick our hearts. Not just once when we say what must we do, but for the rest of our lives as we say, God, we want to please you and, and desire to follow you as our Lord all our lives. That must because when it wears off, We'll be like the Israelites in the wilderness. Luke chapter 9 has this amazing scene of Jesus inviting three of the apostles up for a closer look, and they go up on top of a mountain, and Jesus is transfigured before them. Dazzling white, Mark says, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach something. He's like glowing, and there appear with him two people. Who are they? Moses and Elijah, and they have a conversation. Only Luke records the content of this conversation. Does anybody remember what their conversation is about on the Mount of Transfiguration? The deliverance that was soon to happen in Jerusalem. But the word for, de for deliverance in the, in the Greek is the word exodus. They're talking about the exodus. It's interesting that Moses is having this conversation. He says, now let me tell you, you've got this mission from God, and I failed. I didn't get him in the promised land. And, and I know Jesus is struggling with this, and this transfiguration was an encouragement for him, and he got encouragement from Moses. Moses says, whatever you do, don't fail. Whatever you do, don't give up on this mission. And he didn't. He held strong, and he followed through, and he provided it. But it's a demonstration for us. There is a long journey between baptism and promised land. 
We've got to use caution. Because we can throw it all away if we get too arrogant with it. We must be joyful. The deliverance that we get from our sin is every bit as dramatic and significant as the Red Sea crossing. But the difficulty of making it from the Red Sea to the Promised Land is every bit as challenging as it was for these Israelites those many years ago in Exodus chapter 14. But even when we feel overwhelmed, the thing is this, don't ever forget the God that got you here. The one that not only was willing to give up his son, but what will he not do for you as you journey through this wilderness time? Even when you do feel overwhelmed, and you will, you must remember the God we serve not only saved you from your sin, but he's, gonna say, he's willing to be there and present with you and save you from every dilemma until then, but you must be faithful. Exodus did happen. The story did take place on the stage of history on the earth over there in the Middle East, right? Recall the Exodus and build your faith and your hope in God as your Savior. Recall the Exodus and know that God can sustain you through any challenge that you face. And recall the Exodus and realize that even though you are saved, you have to still make this journey all the way to the promised land and not get short of it. The last warning in the New Testament really about this, there's some in Revelation, but the main warning comes in the book of Hebrews, and I'm going to read it to you. Don't turn there. I'm just going to read it to you. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? See that you, see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. I want you to know they experienced this amazing deliverance and then fell. One chapter further. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from its sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we, to whom we must give account. He is saying to us, learn from them. Do not experience this deliverance and then fail to get the reward and the rest. That would be such a waste. But it's happened before. It happens a lot today. And you must resolve to remember the Red Sea crossing. Not only is that great deliverance sort of like what you experience, but that great God who delivered you that initial time, stands ready to deliver you in all the times until then if you simply trust in him. And he will get you to the promised land, that land of rest for which we sigh. If you've never experienced that deliverance, I, I don't know any plainer way to say it than this. God promises that the debilitating sin that you are involved in that has caused you to be separated from him does not have to be this sea of division. God will erase it all. He will bring you through all that and deliver you from it from with, by that event of Jesus on the cross. That blood still functions. And he tells you, 
This Savior will guide you and this Spirit will guide you through that wilderness time until we're ready to go home with Him. We didn't see the Red Sea. We know what happened. And we know why it happened and who did it. We didn't see the cross either. But we know that it happened. And we know who it was and why He did it. And when we trust that God in both of those accounts, but especially for us, when we trust Him through that cross, He delivers us from our sin, and we praise Him for the rest of our lives, and we trust Him through Jesus to continue to be with us through everything that we face in this life. We can even count it joy because we'll draw closer in all of these circumstances. And one of these days, there's a land of rest we're going to get to, and we're going to claim it. And we're going to be with God and every other person who ever believed in him and sustained that belief. We're going to get there one of these days. And until then, just keep trusting the God that saved us. If you've never entrusted yourself to him, if you've never said the name of his son from your lips as Lord and Savior of your life, this night is a great night to do it. And we would love to see it happen. It happened this morning, shortly after worship service, and a lot of you left. We got to witness it right here this time. Last week it was in a pool. We'd love to see it again. But regardless, everyone who's named the name of Jesus, we've got another week in front of us to be faithful. Trust Him for that week and every week until then. If you need to respond, I, I promise you this, the God who led the Israelites through the Red Sea and the God who sent His Son to die for you and me, is here right now at this very minute pleading with you to let him save you too. Why in the world won't you let him as we stand and as we sing?